All right, as you guys find your seats, we're going to talk about the third thing is the message. So we covered the motivation, the motive, the method. In this session, we're going to talk about the message. Um, this, is, this is arguably the most important part of today's training. Um, if we can become good communicators of the gospel, half the battle is won. I mean, in other words, the power of the word is so effective that it doesn't need your personality added to it. It doesn't need your charisma. The word is powerful. It's completely authoritative. It has all authority because the word is God and God is the word, right? It's living and active, sharper than any other two-edged sword, dividing between bow and marrow, spirit and soul, okay? So we understand the power of the word. So the message is really what sets you aside when it comes to the work of evangelism. I have seen in my own life, the better I have become at articulating the gospel really well. And when I say I, I'm able to describe man's condition, God's love for man, his atonement, and what our response should be scripturally, not just miscellaneously, not just in my own words, but actually through scripture, let the Bible interpret the Bible. It has been, it's, it's changed my impact. So here's an example. You know, a lot of pastors, when they preach, they become very topical. So they choose topics. And then they go and find scripture that support the topic, okay? So we call that eisegetics. Anyone familiar with that term? Eisegetics is the opposite of exegesis or exegetics. Exegesis is where you take the scripture, the passage, and you actually preach what the passage says as opposed to going to the passage and cherry picking what you like out of the passage to kind of staff your point, basically. So when it comes to the gospel... What we need to do is get confident to preach the gospel. So God challenged me maybe about, I would imagine, two years ago, maybe a year and a half, maybe even three semesters ago, he said, Ernie, I want you to stop being topical and just preach my word. So on our campus ministry, you know, because anyone that works with youth or campus are trying to, they're looking for the next newest, hippest idea and, you know, kind of contemporary ideas and hot topics. And they, they, they preach on that, you know, like, you know, um, Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, and they, they come with a, a good sermon on, on that movie because it kind of had a lot of commotion about it or whatever it might be, you know. So um, God said, no, I want you. My word is timeless. So the Bible was not just good 2,000 years or 2,000, it wasn't even there then, just 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago. The Bible is good today. It's as powerful today as, it, as it's ever been. It's still the hope of the nations. It's still the solution. Does that make sense? So the bottom line is you and I need to just say, listen, God, I'm going to start trusting the authority of your word and get good at preaching the message of Christ. So let's go to Ephesians 2, verse 8, 9, and 10. And I, we'll spend the bulk of our time here. Um, as you guys page there, I'll, kind of, I'll start mentioning something. How many of you guys are familiar with the word or the concept of moralism? So what would anyone, anyone you know, um, want to define moralism for us? What is moralism? Just, just yell it out at me. Trying to be good at your own way. So in America, for the most part, what we find is a moralistic gospel, okay? In other words, it's more about you being better 
okay? And it's not really about, hey, you are not good at all, and you are to repent and acknowledge your sin before a holy God and surrender your life so He can save you. So a lot of people that kind of started off like Aisha said, you know, I'm a, I'm a rule follower. You know, they do good in churches like that. Oh, I'm a good person. I'm a good Christian. And, and they consider themselves good. Um, but I love Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. I feel like this cuts. I mean, Paul was fighting a lot of, th that early, I mean, he wrote this epistle as a response to the circumstances of the church in Ephesus. So already as early as that time, when he was writing the, the, this epistle, there was already false doctrine seeping in and the gospel was already being attacked and people were diluting the gospel. Um, and the bottom line is that Paul just cut through all of that and said, hold on, let me just make this very clear. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 8, okay? He says, you're for by grace you have been saved. So he's talking to born-again believers, right? He's reinforcing the gospel message, okay? He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. He says, this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he says, listen, this is, this is by grace alone. What was happening is a lot of the people with Jewish heritage was trying to say, no, 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 listen, it's not just grace, it's grace and. So what happens? Why were they, so, why were they struggling with that so much? So some people, they believe in it's grace plus, or some people say it's, it's just grace, but I don't have to do anything. There's no signs of change. You know what I'm saying? So uh, yeah, I'm a Christian, but there's no signs of Christianity in my life. But because I have faith... I'm a Christian. And then you have people saying, no, 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 I'm a Christian because of my works. So he's saying, no, 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 salvation is God's initiative. God initiated relationship. None of us were walking around looking for a savior. We all thought we would be okay. I just need to beat the guy next to me. If I just live, it's like in Africa saying, we have a rule, you know, if you walk in the bush, just don't ever be behind, you know, just, you just got to beat the, the slowest person in the group and you'll survive, you know, just, if, if there's, you know, if you're under attack, you know, it's kind of a slogan we use, all I got to do is beat you and then I'm fine. And that, that's, we, we adopt that kind of, it's almost like a Darwinian view of, of Christianity where it's, you know, the survival of the fittest. You know, well, you know what, he's a really good person, so he must be a really good Christian. And, and we completely negate the fact that all of us are utterly sinful. You, you can write this down. As man is more desperately wicked than he would ever dare believe about himself. In other words, if we had to see our own filth in the eyes of God, we wouldn't believe it. I recently had this vision and I saw this nasty walking, almost like the walking, you know, the, what's it, the walking dead? What's that series called? The walking dead? Like a zombie that's just this deformed, green, slimy, nasty little, not very impressive monster in kind of a semi-human form running to this person that's just, Gucci suit or Armani suit, smelling perfect. I mean, he just looks perfect, like he just came out of a catalog. And he runs, and this person with the suit, I would think, you just, I'm thinking, get away. Get, get this. I mean, this person, is, in this, this vision I had, this person is so nasty, smelly. And this, this person in the suit, I'm thinking, he should get away from that. He's going to make him dirty. 
And I saw this person in this beautiful tux just embrace this monster. And this monster just started transforming in the arms of this guy in this tux. And I heard the Lord say, honey, that's you and me. He says, you come running to me. He says, you are so nasty. Like you are so full of sin and unright. You drip of sin. I mean, when you walk around, you smell of sin. It's like someone that had a cup of coffee. I'm drinking coffee right now. And the more, you, you can smell when someone has had coffee. You can't hide the coffee smell. You can smell when someone's brushed their teeth. You can smell when someone has drank alcohol or, or smoked. Some, some smells linger. Your sin is lingering in the presence of God. It's nasty. It's filthy. It's disgusting. But what does he do? As opposed to walking away from you, he pursues you and he embraces you. And in that embrace, he transforms you. He changes you. He makes you more like him. And the filth and the gunk and the slime and the, all the goo and all the, just the disgustingness of your life just starts changing in the arms of your Savior. He came to change us. And we have to understand, Paul said, listen, don't ever think that some people are more lost than you. All that does is produces religious pride in you. Where some people are like, you kind of, oh, no, 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 I think you're good. I think you're good. No, no one is good. Bible says no one is righteous, not even one. No one does what is right and never sins. I said this earlier, even our best offering to God is like a filthy rag that he can hardly touch. It's so bad. It's so nasty. The most moral person you know has, so, has fallen so far short of the glory of God. In other words, when you meet someone that's, that really lives up to good morality, you've got to always ask yourself, Genesis 6 says that God was mad at the people of Noah's day because he knew even the intentions of their thoughts. I mean, that's how deep he sees us. He knows even so whenever I start, we, we, my wife and I started our orphanage, I had all these you know, African kids around me. And you don't normally see a white man like my age at that point, my age, walking around with a bunch of black babies in Africa. And this one white dude came over to me. He said, dude, what you doing? I said, well, we've got an orphanage. I told him what we do. I said, these babies have been abandoned from birth, so we care for them. We are advocating and trying to find them families, et cetera, et cetera. And he looks at me and says, you are saint. You're going straight. You're missing purgatory. You're going straight to heaven. And he was serious. I looked at him. I said, listen, I'm glad to tell you this today. I said, even if I had a million orphanages and I helped a billion children, and I lived a million years, and did as much of that as I could over a million years, that still wouldn't be good enough to get myself into heaven. Because let me tell you, there's a lot of people that start charities and do good in the name of good, because that helps their, per their personal portfolio. That helps their political agenda. My wife, my wife and I did some modeling when I was about 30 pounds lighter, and you know, she can still do it. I can't. You know, I'm just preaching now. Um, and, 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 and we had this one sh show we did in South Africa and all this, like, Mr. South Africa and Mr. South Africa were all involved. It was a big deal in South Africa. And, and we got, we got dra dragged into it. We, you could have, they, the winners won a massive trip to New York, very fancy. So people could miss us. Hey, y'all need to do this. They stopped us literally one day in a grocery store and said, hey, y'all need to come and sign in. We think you guys could do good at this. And we said, okay, whatever. We would like to go to America for free and see your family. So we did it, and, and, and I remember behind the scenes, girls are getting naked, guys are getting naked, my wife and I are trying to, we don't even know, I don't even know what to do. I, I'm like, what the heck did I say yes to? It's crazy. Um, and all these people that just looks gorgeous. 
and have, by the way, really good social reputations. I mean, they're doing a lot of good, so to speak, in community and culture and society. Um, they, uh, they start opening their mouth and talk about their life and they come back and they say the most vulgar stuff. One girl's trying to chat me up in front of my wife thinking that that's okay. I'm thinking like, I have, I mean, I've been around some bad people, but I haven't, and all these people, this one guy looked at me and said, hey man, can I come work at your orphanage sometime and take some pictures because I need it for my portfolio? Because that helps me when I run for Mr. South Africa, they look at stuff like that. I said, so you want to come and help take care of our children so you can look good to them? He said, yeah, that's basically what I'm, can I do it? I said, heck No. I said, I'm not going to help you with that. And so Genesis 6, 5, even the good things we try and do, we have such ulterior motives in it. And I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about us. I have, I have compared myself even as a pastor and looking at people and, and felt worthy because of the fruit of my life. Like somehow my fruit now dictates my value. Or what if I have a season of no fruit? Am I now completely valueless? What's my motivation? What drives me? So listen, the message of the gospel, we have to fully understand, one, that man is utterly lost without God. There's no way to get to heaven. There's no alternative to heaven except through Christ. He said, I am the only mediator, the only way to, to, to the Father. There's no other way. There's no other shortcut. There's, there's no one that can make the jump from death to life away or apart from Jesus. So there's no one righteous, not even one. So we have to understand. And here's where you can tell uh, the gospel message people heard. You can look at their lives. In other words, when we look at the church in America today, how many people tithe less than 10%? If you don't tithe, if you don't give at least 10% of your resources to God, we have a lordship issue. There's a problem with who runs, your, who runs the show in your life. Is it you or is it him? Does he even, is he even king over your finances? Now, that's an easy way to dictate. But Well, I don't like because they, they buy new TVs. and they, uh, Listen, I, I, the fear of God is so strong in my heart. I'd, I'm not judging a pastor's decision about what he buys. If God put me in that church, I'm giving him 10%. I'm saying, God, God this is yours. And if they mess it up, they're gonna, you're going to deal with them. But I am not letting their mistake qualify my sin. Uh, so it's a lordship issue. Now you ask yourself, okay, hold on. Why do people, they don't tithe, uh, they don't do anything for Jesus, they just come and get and like, they just sit there and just fill the seats and just take from God. And then you ask yourself, maybe, just maybe, they haven't fully heard or understood the gospel. Because the last time I checked, when people, and I read the Bible, when people were transformed by Jesus, they looked at him like Saul of Tarsus on his way to go persecute Christians, encounters the glory of Jesus, hears God speak to him, he's on his way to kill Christians, and all of a sudden becomes one of the most prolific missionaries for the glory of God, suffering many things for the name of Jesus, willingly, why? Because he saw Christ. He saw the gospel. It was so powerful. It was so consuming. The Bible says that God's a consuming fire. When he saw the glory of Christ, he saw the gospel. He was so changed, he could never turn back. And he couldn't give anything less than everything he had. His whole life. He said, I withhold nothing from him. I'm being poured out as a drink offering unto the Lord. Now, we know that's not the case with most of modern times Western Christians, why not? I don't think it's, I think it's because they haven't really heard the real gospel. 
They might have heard a version of the gospel, maybe more of a moralistic way, like somehow there's an evangelistic payment plan. Like I give a little bit now and a little bit then and a little bit then. And by the end of my life, I would have given my whole life to him and that way I'll get to heaven or whatever it is that they hear. But you don't see the transforming nature of Christ inside of them. But why? Because I don't think we explain it very well. I'm not talking about Pastor Chris. I'm, I know he preaches the gospel. And I know in this church, you guys will preach the gospel. But we need to help our pastors. We need to help our leadership preach the gospel to those even around us. I, you can't ever underestimate the value of your evangelistic work, even within the context of your own church. Beyond just reaching people outside of the church. If people understand that they are lost and they, they have to completely surrender, that's the right response to the gospel. Transformation is imminent. They're going to be changed. No one ever had to tell me to give anything to Jesus. I just said, listen, or, or had to convince me. When they said, this is what the Bible says, I said, here it is, take it. I'm not fighting anybody. Why? I'm so thankful that God would save me. I knew that I had a chance to escape what I, what I am escaping. I'm so thankful that God in His infinite wisdom and His love came to me. So when I started seeing the glory of Christ, nothing else can compare. And all I want is His glory to expand in all the earth. We have to make sure when we preach the gospel to people that we're not making them believe that somehow they can get there outside of or without Jesus. Because they will always lack scriptural conviction or real biblical change, transformation, if they don't really submit to the real gospel. It's the gospel people are hearing motivating them to go to the nations. You think someone's going to go lay down their life and go to the Middle East to be a missionary with a half gospel? <laughs> Heck No. I hope that's not a cuss word to you. It's not a cuss word where I'm from. It's not, they're not going to do it. Y'all were like, I'm in the South. I got to be careful, you know. You can, you can eat fried Twinkies, but you can't say heck here. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> the, so the bottom line is that when we experience the, the glorious gospel and the power of Christ in our lives, it changes us in a way that makes us do things that we would never do because of natural, nat, just natural reason. When, when God changed my life and when I heard the gospel, I was around the gospel my whole life. And when I was confronted with the gospel in, in 2004, when I got saved, I, there's, something, there's something that hit me so hard that all of a sudden, everything that used to have a hold on me, it just broke in almost instantaneously. So John 8, 36 says, whomever the Son sets free, they shall be free indeed. When, when the gospel comes in, there's a spiritual freedom that comes that's completely supernatural, that frees you from the thing that used to run you, the, the former lust of the flesh that we were bound to, we were in chains to. Now we found, find ourselves in chains with heaven, with God. And that's a, good, that's a good person to be bound to, especially when the darkness is trying to pull you again. I'm bound. Let me remind you, I've got a covenant. I've got a covenant here. You can't touch me. You can't, you can't pull me away from I'm tied to him for all eternity. Thank God for that. I used to be tied to you, but he, Jesus set me free. He paid my price, and I'm free for all eternity. All eternity. And that produces something inside of us that's supernatural. I've got friends that's in Nairobi right now, quite frankly, planning churches. People that's left, I mean, comfortable scenarios, salaries, lay down great jobs, have, have made decisions that you think, man, that just sounds insane. Like, God, 
that's crazy. And they said, I know, but bro, I, I can't resist the call of God. There's nothing he can't ask of me. Yeah. See people that's in America, for instance, that will walk around and they'll be rejected all the time, but they keep praying for people. Why? Why do they keep facing rejection to pray for people or to testify and witness for Jesus? Because they had a revelation of the glory of the king of all the earth. It's the only thing that drives them. They're not looking for more, a higher place in heaven. They're just saying, I can't, I don't care what you do. I care because I've seen what he did. So when we have a revelation of what Christ did, we don't care what, about what culture says. It's not nearly as powerful as the love of God. It, the, he, in fact, his love casts out all fear. It drives out fear out of our lives. The fear of man, the fear of rejection, it drives it all out. So what we have to do when we go and do the work of evangelism is properly explain salvation and lordship and repentance. Those three goes hand in hand. Salvation, lordship, and repentance. So when I meet an unbeliever, my goal for them. Now, someone, people will tell me, hey, I'm a believer. I'm like, okay, good. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I'm, and and I'll, give them, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But what we'll do is we'll start going to Scripture. And I'll say, okay, hold on. Have you, have you read this Scripture? Hey, have you seen this? Hey, have you considered that? And they'll say, you know what? I've never seen that nor known that. Or have I ever experienced that? And I'm saying, well, according to this, uh, I don't think you can say you're a believer. I know you acknowledge Jesus, but it's clear through the Word of God that you are not in what Jesus would consider the family of God. And here's why. And you start explaining and all of a sudden people say, well, I, I didn't know that. And like Paul, like, like Paul said, what must I do for you? Like the people in Acts 2 said, what must we do to be saved? When Peter preached the gospel after the, 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 the day of Pentecost. What must we do to be saved? So all of a sudden when we articulate the gospel, salvation, lordship, and repentance, clearly... And effectively, what happens? The word goes forth. It starts cutting in hearts. And all of a sudden, it demands a response. The gospel always demands a response. The gospel always demands a response. In other words, it, it, when you preach it, people will respond. Well, how will they respond? Well, they might reject it. We know that, right? Many will reject it. Sadly, but many will accept it, thankfully. So we don't, de like, we don't play that game. I don't know who's going to receive Christ. I, I'm just doing my due diligence to proclaim Him. It's God's job to save them. I, I can't save you. All I can do, the best I can do is say, let me just not mess up this message. Let me just at least bring the word to you because this is a human right, a basic right for a human. Let me just give you this word and you need to respond to this word because God's word, the gospel demands a response. I tell people this all the time. I'll take off my wedding ring and I say, listen. So when Jesus died on the cross, he got on his knee before you and he basically is, it's God proposing to humanity, holding up a covenant saying, I have decided that I love you with all my heart and that I want to be committed to you for all eternity. Would you accept my commitment and commit to me in the same way? And what we do is we say, well, you know, I want you, but why, why don't you and I just get married for 364 days out of the year and that last day I can just do whatever I want? And 
then God says, well, I am giving you everything. So if you give me everything, boom, we'll have a covenant for all eternity. And then we convince ourselves, well, we'll just be committed most time. Then I ask, I ask guys and girls, this. I say, well, would you give your hand in marriage to a person that makes that proposal or gives you that response? No, because you know your value. I'm worth being committed to. Now, Jesus showed us our value because he made the ultimate commitment unto death. So there's, if you are not ultimately committed to him back, there's no relationship because there's no covenant. You, you're not in a union. You're not reconciled to him. You can't be right with Jesus until you say, God, I give you everything. That's the moment the transforming grace of the gospel gets at work in you when you say, God, I'm putting on the ring of a covenant and I'm saying yes to you and no to the world. God said yes to us, but are we saying yes to him? And see, what we got to do is say, I boldly proclaim this to people. They need to hear this. People will say, well, who are you to tell me that I'm not a Christian, you know, just because I have sex with my boyfriend or, or I have sex with my girlfriend or I do some drugs every now and then. I'm saying, I say, well, I can see it because of your commitment. It's clear to me that when the gospel, when people experience and receive the commitment of Christ, by faith and they commit the same way, that there's a real desire to actually walk with Jesus. In other words, my wife, I have a desire to show my wife my commitment and be faithful to her because I made a decision and so my actions back up my claim. In other words, you don't see me hanging around with a bunch of different girls at clubs and bars and other people's homes. And if you did, you would question my commitment to my wife, right? I mean, that's just a natural conclusion. So why, why is it a wrong conclusion if you are saying, no, 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 I'm married to Jesus, but you're holding hands with the devil. You can't be married to him and date the devil. I mean, that ain't working because then you are being deceived by a false message. Jesus said, I hate darkness. James 4, friendship with the world is enmity with God. If you want to be friends with the world, in other words, if you want to be in constant relation with those of the world and agree with the things of the world, you are actually making yourself an enemy of God. <laughs> He's not playing games. He is a fully righteous God. God doesn't do righteous deeds. He is righteous. He doesn't just execute justice. He is justice. He doesn't just give love. He is love. That's in his nature. That's who he is. So when you say, well, I'm just dibbling and dabbling and playing and fooling around in sin, but claiming Jesus, then obviously you don't fully understand the gospel. Now let me just clarify. The Bible says that even though a righteous person, someone that's been made right by faith, right, will fall several times, they will rise again. But it's the wicked that's brought down by their calamity. In other words, those that's unreconciled, that they don't just make mistakes, they live in it. So I can't say, well, I'm just flawed. I'm just, you know, I'm a sinner. I, I'm in need of God's grace. No, I, all of us stand in sin. So stand next to me quickly, Jay. So let me just demonstrate this. You face that way. So we both are born and standing in sin, right? We were born into sin. I've got a two-year-old, and the moment your, 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 your toddler starts opening their mouth, somehow, for some reason, they'll lie about stuff. And my first question is always, who told you to lie? And the answer is always, nobody. It's in her nature. It's in his nature. It's in us. 
We have a evil disease that's in us. We are infected. It's not just around us because we are always so concerned about the sin outside. How about we start looking at the sin inside? That's where, before you want to cure the whole world of its sin and the whole world of evil, let's start with you. Let's get the sin out of you and then let's move on to the next person. Right? And that's what the gospel does. The gospel is changing and, and, and eradicating evil one person at a time. One life at a time. So we were born into sin. In other words, we started life this way, born into sin, sinners, we love it, we eat it, we go for it. Boom, we hear the gospel. I respond to it. I turn away from my evil ways. Now I'm pursuing Jesus. He's still looking that way. He's still pursuing sin. We both have knowledge of Christ. We both claim Jesus. We both lift our hands, lift our hands up in worship because that's the quote-unquote religious thing to do. You know, that's what you should do. I should do good things. And, you know, I guess he, he made me so I can raise my hands to him. And I'll give him $10 every now and then for an offering. And, you know, um, I think we're good. I think we're maintaining a, fa a fairly good relationship. The problem is if you don't turn away from your old ways and, and start pursuing him, you can't be saved. You are rejecting his offer. Does it make sense? So we both stand in sin, but we're facing in the opposite direction. So even though I'll walk and I'll stumble every now and then, I'll get back up and I'll continue following Jesus. He will follow. He doesn't even have to stumble. He's just doing what he's already been doing before. For him, sinning is not stumbling. Sinning is just a way of life. Does it make sense? Thanks, Jay. Now, we have to explain that to people. As simple as that seems... That people don't get that. They walk around convincing themselves. I remember before I got saved, or looking, okay, I think I did this right. I think, and so I would kind of weigh out my good and bad and think, well, I think I did enough good to be saved. If I stood before God, I think you'll let me in. Until someone said, no, 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 Ernie, there's not even a scale, buddy. You are lost. There's no scale. There's no weighing scale here. You are lost from the beginning and you need to get saved. You need to decide to walk from that side of the line to this side of the line. It's a decision of faith. Right now, you are trusting in what you can do to be right, but he already said there's nothing you can do. All you can do is say, God, I'm putting all my faith, all my hope, all my trust in you and in you alone. And that alone is called saving faith. Where I put my faith in Christ, I'm made alive, I'm regenerated, I'm, made, I'm, I'm being made alive in Christ, and now I'm transformed by the glorious gospel. It's, it's scary how much of the false gospel goes around in our world and society. We have in the last year um, baptized and led to the Lord, our students actually has, staff members of mega churches in Dallas non-pastoral staff members, students that's on staff at a church being paid out of the tithe of believers has come into our campus ministry and our students just say, hey, that's awesome. You're a staff at this church? Hey, let me ask you this. Have you heard of salvation and lordship? No, I haven't. I know I need to get saved, but I've never read scripture really thoroughly about it. And they end up giving their life to Jesus and we baptize them and just say, it's our pleasure. <laughs> We're just blessing our city and our community. And those people are just all of a sudden have a newfound passion for Jesus. It's not just a social club anymore. Now it's a personal thing and they, they want to serve him wholeheartedly and take new steps of faith for him. I'm not talking about prominent churches. And I'm not saying those people don't preach the gospel. The question is, are people sitting people down and saying, hey, have you applied the gospel to your life? And that's where we come in. You know, people say, well, I don't like discipleship. It's, it's too much time. I say, listen, discipleship, discipling unbelievers and sharing the gospel with them is not a duty. It's a privilege. 
It's a privilege. I'm so thankful that God gives me a chance to share my story that anyone would even want to listen to me. I'm so happy when anyone is looking at me and engaging and actually listening to what I have to say because I know it's not because I'm so cool or so great. My accent gets irritating after a while. It's only cool for one session and then you're like, okay, I'm done. The bottom line is that God is glorious and when people see their glory, it causes them to respond and say, God, I give you everything. But we have to get good at communicating the message of the gospel. And what is the message of the gospel? Paul was saying here, for by grace you've been saved through faith. As God provided for us a way of escape, where all man has sinned and has fallen short of God's glory. None of us are righteous. No one. So the, 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 the playing ground's level. There's no one that can get into heaven. Doesn't matter how good you live, whether you live a morally superior or inferior life, whether you steal $1,000 or $1, you're still a thief. Thief is a thief. So if you've stolen a million or if you've stolen one, you're a thief. Why? For us, that's like, well, you know what? I, I, I'll forgive someone for a dollar. Yeah, because you're a human. You're not holy. Your standard and God's standard is different. For God's sin is utterly disgraceful. He can't even be in the presence of sin. Back in the Old Testament, you guys will know this, when they built the tabernacle and the temple, when people would, one priest once a year could go in to the Holy of Holies and make an atonement for God's people. And if he had even any, like there was these ma massive sanctification processes and repentance, pro process of repentance before they entered the Holy of Holies. And if there was any, just even one unconfessed sin, they would die in the presence of God. And they would have a rope around the ankle with palm granites in and, and a little container, whatever they, however they made that, I can't remember exactly, that would shake. And if, they, if the people stopped hearing the shaking and they knew this person have been, must have forgotten to repent of something. And now people, well, that's mean. How can God do that? Well, that doesn't mean that guy is going to hell. That just means God was demonstrating to his people his holiness. He was introducing Israel to holiness. It was a foreign concept. There was polytheistic society where there was multiple gods that were offering children open, open and out in the public. It was a depraved society. So he's introducing this concept of his holiness. That even one unconfessed sin would cost you your life and his presence. You actually couldn't even enter his presence. Therefore, we needed a what? A mediator. We needed an atoner. We, we needed someone that can open the way for us because who's without sin? It, see, in the Old Testament, it all points to Jesus. But we have to understand the devastating effect and the ramifications of sin. Sin is still wrong in the eyes of God. God didn't change his mind. He doesn't take sin any less or more lightly today. He, he still hates it. He hates it and he will punish it. See, God's loving and merciful. And in our generation, we love the love and the mercy of God. We, we focus on that so emphatically. It's crazy. But we forget that he's also a God of justice and also a righteous God of justice that's going to judge his creation righteously for what they are worthy of receiving, the wages they have worked, the wages they have earned. And unless someone intercepted and took our wages, we are all liable. And people must hear that. That's not a new gospel. That's not a new message. That's the Bible. That's what Jesus has been telling us from Genesis to Revelation. He tells us, listen, there's nothing that you can do. You, are, you have fallen short of my glory. Even the offerings that the Israelites made always involved blood and of the first lamb, pointing to the Messiah that's coming that was going to make the perfect atonement for all of creation. That we can be redeemed and fully be won back to him. 
with no guilt, without spot, without blemish, not because we're so perfect, but because we accepted he, the one who is. We have to understand our sin. We have to understand God's provision. What is God's grace? God's grace is not permission to live in sin. It's God's permission and God's ability to start living in victory over sin. We can't misapply grace. Grace is God's divine strength that's at work inside of us that takes us from glory to glory, from strength to strength. That's grace. Most people use, oh, I'm, I'm under the grace of God. And using that to defend their sin. No, 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 no. God's grace is the very thing that pulls you out of your sin. That's the purpose of grace. So when you start putting faith in God's grace, what happens? He starts reaching down to you and pulling you up out of your sin. That's what happens when you put your faith in His grace. See, justification is by faith alone, right? But justification is not alone. Y'all picking up what I'm putting down? Justification is by faith alone. F.F. If Bruce said this, by the, by the way. It's not me being very smart. But justification is not alone. So justification is by faith alone, but justification does not stand alone. What comes with justification? Good works. Paul said, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast and think that somehow he's more saved or better saved or more kind of morally superior to other people. No, no, no. It's by God's grace alone. His divine grace. All of us are walking. Those who are in Christ are walking in God's grace. What I'm doing now, this is God's grace. I didn't earn this. In fact, like Paul said, I feel like I'm the least of these. Uh, if there's anyone that's unworthy of teaching anyone about Jesus, it's, it must, I feel like it's me. But God's grace is at work in me. He would take me. I had friends look at me that went to high school with me that knew me before Jesus. And they said, dude, what, the, what happened? And I'll be like, Jesus, bro. I, Jesus. I, like, I didn't even have words at that time. I just would say, Jesus. They would say, well, you don't do this anymore. You don't, like, I, like, I, I, don't, I hate that stuff now, bro. And they say, what? I said, Jesus, God's grace, when I, the moment I put my faith in His grace, things changed. It changed everything. He says, it's not of works lest any man should boast. And then he goes on to say, this is important, for we are His workmanship. What does that mean? Regional Greek, masterpiece. Imagine a canvas, a painting. Like you are his masterpiece and, and he is throwing our paint on, the, on this canvas. He is running your life. He is making something beautiful out of you. He says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand. So anyone that comes, anyone that's experienced the grace of God through faith must have good works following their life. Right? Script, I mean, scripturally, Right? So God's grace and faith, justification does not stand alone. It's by faith alone. It's obtained by faith alone, but it's not alone. It, it, it's accompanied by works and a desire to work for the Lord, right? So that's what drives us and motivates us. I think that concludes our session for today in terms of content. Let me just take a few minutes here and a few moments to talk about just some personal experiences and stories. And then I want to also leave maybe the last five minutes just for Q&A again. You know, I have, when the grace of God started working in me, the moment I got saved and, and God's grace started working in my life, um, 
It, was, it blew my mind because I, I, was, I was fearful of getting married because I've never been able to be faithful. Like I was unable to be faithful to anyone I ever dated before I married, before I, got, before I knew Jesus, right? So I had a genuine fear of commitment because I knew even before I committed, I would break it because I've never, my track record was breaking commitment. Like I could never stay committed to one girl when I was growing up in high school. Um, and I remember having this genuine fear in my soul and, and I would get ang- like, almost like panic attacks about the thought of marriage. Because, not because of their commitment, because of my commitment. I just thought being committed to one woman for the rest of my life, I was like, I don't think I can do it. So I'm just gonna not commit to anyone at all and just stay committed to Jesus, right? So it was a fear-based decision. I remember one morning I prayed, I said, God, clearly I'm not meeting my wife. You know, I've been saved like two years. Um, and so, uh, so I'm okay with not being married for the rest of my life. I love you. I love serving you. And so I'm okay with it. I'm okay with being single for the rest of my life. And I really actually was. I enjoyed single life. You know, it was really great. Not because I had a license to sin. I, in fact, I never kissed, never dated, never did anything like that after I got saved. I avoided that because I started understanding a woman's value and that they were daughters of God. And if I touched them wrongfully or stole their heart emotionally, I was going to have to give an account for that. And that terrified me. I was like, I'm done. I've, Lord, I'm done and did enough for that, you know. So I was like Martin Luther before he understood the grace of God. I was beating myself up already, you know. Um, and so I didn't want to mess with any of that stuff. And then God brought Katie into my life one day. I saw her and the Lord spoke to me as clear as you're hearing me right now. I said, that's your wife. And I said, I rebuke you, devil, in the name of Jesus. <laughs> I really did. I was, I, was, I, was, I was convinced it was the devil. And so I started rebuking Satan. I mean, I'm serious. I'm walking like, I, just, I take this thought captive. I take vanity. I give it to Jesus. And as I'm doing it, my pastor walks to me and he says, hey, Ernie, you got to come meet someone quickly. So I'm like, okay, I'm not even, I'm still fighting the devil. He has no idea. And he starts walking me to the person I'm rebuking in my head. And I look up and I'm like, I'm thinking my pastor must be demonized. Does he not know I'm fighting this very thought right this moment? And he says, Ernie, you need to meet Katie. And so he asked me, would you bring her into y'all's friendship circle? Because we had a big single community um, on our campus that loved Jesus. And a lot of us already graduated and was not involved in, in, in college anymore, but we still attended the college service and helped make disciples there, et cetera. And, um, and I remember that night I said, this can't be in 10 minutes into worship. The grace of God, again, the grace of God hit my heart in a way that it hadn't before. And he said, Ernie, it's me, that's your wife. And this fear just subsided instantaneously. Just that anxiety, that fear, that fear of commitment, all my past failures that I was constantly being reminded of just subsided instantaneously. And I looked over and I said, no way. I looked at her, I said, there's no way. There's no way that's my wife. And so after the service, I quickly ran got together a gaggle of people and said, hey, let's go have coffee at this one location. We got there and within a week, the Lord said, tell within seven days from when I met her, he said, tell her that she's your wife. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna do that. You know, I've seen that. So I went to my pastors. I said, listen, tell me I'm crazy. Please confirm to me that I have lost my mind. I heard she's my wife, but I think I'm going crazy. Am I crazy? They said, no, actually, we think you heard from God. And I was like... What? So I get around Katie the next time, and this is really a testimony of the grace, the divine strength of God at work in a fallen human's life, okay? I've never been faithful. 
I've never been able to be faithful to anybody in my life before. Never. It's constantly being reminded by that. But God starts coming in, and by faith, God's grace is now at work inside of me. And seven days later, he said, uh, he said tell her, tell her. I'm around her, and I try and avoid it. We were at the orphanage. I, I regularly was at it. She happened to volunteer. So I'm walking away from Katie, and she follows me into the kitchen. And I'm standing there, and I, I didn't speak English like this. I, I'm Afrikaans, so my first language is not. So imagine someone that speaks Spanish that's maybe 40% fluent in English. You know, so I could understand it, but I couldn't speak it fluently. So I'm, I'm already nervous. I mean, I can hardly say five sentences before I have to pause and, uh, uh, you know, and look for another word and feeling so stupid, um, you know. And, 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 and she comes and she looks at me. She says, do you have to tell me something? And I'm like, <laughs> you know, and she's like, what? And I say, uh, and so I start stuttering like someone with a problem. And I can't get it out. She said, you want to go sit somewhere more private? I said, yeah, 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 yeah. So we, we go sit somewhere and... As I'm working, I say, God, I need you to give me the boldness to tell her what you said and what my leaders confirmed. I'm, I'm, I'm beyond terrified. If there's something more than being terrified, I'm that. I'm, I'm really seriously that. I, I, I'm, I'm, this is so far beyond me. And, um, and, and so I sit down with her, and, I just, and, and this boldness starts welling up in me, the boldness of the Holy Spirit, the grace of God. Okay, I'm using the word, the word grace deliberately because it's overused and misapplied. But the grace of God, the Spirit of the Lord is now working inside of me. And I say, Katie, I, and I give her a quick overview of my past. I lived a terrible past. And you'll hear from it because I'm a professional athlete. So at some point, stuff will come out. Okay, once because people were following my life and saw the change. And we're guessing, is this real? Is this going to stick? Is this, gonna, is this this little season in his life? I said, but Jesus came into my life. I love athletes. I love orphans. I don't know what my future holds. We might live in a mud hut in Africa or in a mansion somewhere. I don't know. But I want to serve God for the rest of my life, and I want to marry you. And if you feel the same way, you can say yes now, or you can slap me and walk away and think I'm weird and never talk to me. I'm okay with that. And she looks at me, and she smiles, and she says, what took you so long? The little that I know, Katie never dated anybody. She got saved when she was six years old. The day we got married was her first kiss ever, ever. I explored th sexual things before I was even a teenager, and things happened to me, and, you know, different things happened. And part of my testimony, God started healing me, and my life got opened up involuntarily in, in ways that it shouldn't have been. And God came and redeemed me, and the grace of God was at work in me by faith. Right, So today I have no shame about that. I can boldly speak about that. I'm healed from that. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm not holding any grudges against anyone. God's really the grace of God, again, is healing and restoring, right? Um, but before that, I always was a Christian, but the grace was not at work in me, right? Because I didn't understand grace, because I haven't been changed by grace, because I didn't put my faith in grace, in God's grace, in God's faith. He's saving power for me. And so all that happened, and it changed my life in such a way today we've been married 10 years. I've never even come close, never even looked at someone wrong online, never even watched pornography in 13 years of being saved. None of that stuff got completely enough for me. That's huge because I was so saturated with that before Jesus. And see, but that's what happens when His grace shows up in your life. It's at work in you. So that's why I have so much confidence when I preach the gospel because I have seen Jesus change me. 
And that's why Revelation says we overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb, the work on the cross, and the word of it. We, are, we, are, we have a story to tell, a testimony. It builds our confidence. When I heard Terrence's story this morning, his testimony, it built my faith. I was like, gosh, that's, yes, that's our Lord. That's the grace of God, yes. So we have to always be bold when it comes to the message of God's grace. That there's no one outside of God's control. There's no one that can be transformed by Him. The, the guy I alluded to in the first session, Roderick Woodson, he's got 6,000 views minimum on, his, on, on most of his um, Facebook Live, or 5,000 or 6,000 views, Facebook Live, um, little prayer stuff that he does. That man was one of the most broken people I've ever, I listened to him, I said, I don't think I've ever met anyone this broken in my life. I, I couldn't think that, you know, it's almost like can any, like when, when it was Nathan that said, can anyone, Nathaniel, can anything good come from Nazareth, you know, I'm talking about Jesus. And, and I thought, man, can anything good come from this man's life? And here he is traveling the country, having revival meetings, you know. I mean, so you just don't, under, you can't underestimate the power of God's grace. But you have to help people put their faith, not in their works, not in how good they can be, in his grace. That's what changes Everything, grace changes everything. Does that make sense? All right, are we good? Okay, well, that's it. That's our time. I wanted to honor y'all's time and finish at 2 o'clock.